0: What's up, guys? You're now listening to Devo with Uncle Theo. Today is day 18, and guess what, Brother Dustin? What's going on? We have officially completed a book. We finished Genesis, bro. I'm so thankful that we were able to have some success and a, a mile marker here, and this encourages us to keep going because people are telling me that they've been helped, they've been blessed by us walking through Scripture. The compliment I get is they are thankful for our excitement around the Word of God. And that means a lot to me because we're younger in a new generation. And I think it gives people hope that God is continuing to preserve his remnant and have people that will stand on the Word of God faithfully in a new generation and carry not only good theology, but a good love for the Lord on into the next generation. Let's hop into Exodus. Uh, We need to do a short introduction, because there's some debate around the dates on when Exodus was written. And a lot of people take an early date, and some people take a later date. And actually, the majority position is a later date. When you look at the mainstream, in fact, the Disney movie Prince of Egypt, mm-hmm. it takes the later date with Ramses being a pharaoh. In chapter 1, verse 11, where it the city is Pithom and Ramses that date is taken on the basis of that and on the basis of another group I talked about called the Hyksos. The Hyksos was a Semitic people that temporarily had control over Egypt and they were at a later date. And that's how some people prove that Joseph rose to the top because it was already some Hebrews there that promoted him. And I think we need to push back against that a little bit because I think the earlier date is more accurate for a few reasons. One, if you do the math from 1 Kings chapter 6, the building of Solomon's temple, T- Solomon's temple is agreed universally to have been built at 966 BC. And when you do the math, it says that after the 480th year of the people leaving Egypt, if you add 480 to 966, you get about 1448. And that, that will put us around the writing of this book. And so that would be a, a earlier date. And another reason the earlier date makes sense is because when you look at the timeline, Moses is born, he kills a guy, then he runs away for 40 years. Then in Exodus 2, it says Pharaoh dies. So a new Pharaoh comes to power, and this is the Pharaoh of the Exodus and the one where Moses says, let my people go to. So if we can match history with that timeline of Pharaoh dying and then the Pharaoh of the Exodus, we can figure out who is the Pharaoh of this time period. And I think we have a match, bro. We have a match. If you look, there's this guy by the name of Thutmose III and he ruled for 40 years and he dies and it leads to a different king. And so when Moses was a baby, he was picked up by this young lady, right? And this fits this time period as well, because there's a lady by the name of Hepshetsu, Hepshetsu, and she fits the bill. When you look at literature about her, she's bold, she's spunky, she's sassy, and she could have been the very woman that picked up the basket and brought Moses into Pharaoh's court and saying, hey, we're adopting this baby, case closed, deal with it so you got that but another thing that argues for an earlier date they had stillies back then or sphinx, and a stilly is something that that they would it's like a plaque and so on this plaque there's this guy by the name of Tutmost the fourth and tutmos the fourth said that he had a stilly tell him that he would be king and so here's the problem Why would a son need a stilly to tell him to be king? Mm. Wouldn't he automatically be king as the firstborn son? Unless the firstborn son dies and something may be called a plague, the tenth plague, what happens? All of the firstborn sons are killed. And so this matches up perfectly. So I just wanted to talk about the pharaohs and how Joseph comes down to Egypt and what we would call the 12th dynasty. And he's very powerful, he's very prosperous. And even through the famine and how he helps Egypt and he revives their wealth. And when we go further about the 13th to 17th dynasty, it's the Hyksos that people confuse that Joseph would have been promoted through. But then we get, there's a revolt and then there's an 18th dynasty and they kicked the hit sauce out. And we see that in the text, it says, there arises a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And so this is the 18th dynasty that we see when we get to scripture. And so I want to talk about all of these characters as we walk through. You have the first, that's Moses' granddad, or let's just say his step granddad, the guy that wants to kill all of the firstborn. Moses is floating down a river and Hapshetsu find, finds him, and she takes Moses in, and she marries her half-brother, Tutmos II. And strangely enough, he mysteriously dies, and Hapshetsu becomes queen. And Tutmos the III, their child, is Moses' stepbrother. Now think about this. Why do you think Moses had to run away after his murder? When he killed that guy, who saw an opportunity to take the throne, Tutmose third, who is Moses' stepbrother. And you see why Moses had to run away, because when Moses killed the guy, that was a threat for him to take the throne. And so his mom is weak, she's dying at this time. Now you see why he's in the wilderness for 40 years. And then we have a guy, Amenhotep II, and that's our guy. That's the son of Tutmose third. Now, if you think politics, your uncle comes back. What do you think? He's back for the throne. You can't show your weakness. You can't acquiesce to him, or you're putting the throne in jeopardy. This is why you make your heart harden. This is why you have pride. And Amenhotep II has two sons. We don't know the name of the older one, but the younger one is Tutmose the IV, and that's our dream stilly guy. And so I'm doing all of this to set up the background to show that not only is scripture exciting and thrilling and nourishes our faith, it lines up well with history. When Not only when you do the math from Solomon's temple, but also when you line this up with history, you have all of these characters in history to match what scripture is saying. And so scripture is informing history and I just thought that was a, a beautiful thing and it gives us more insight on all of the battles and everything that's going on as we walk into Exodus. So without further ado, my God, let's walk into Exodus. Let's Let's tackle chapter one. So as we walk into the chapter, it says that these are the names of the son of Israel who came out of Egypt with Jacob knows of the 12 tribes. And it says all the persons, this is verse five who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. And, bro, this is what I'm talking about. This is why God got them down to Egypt so he could make them become a great nation because they weren't following him fully, they weren't following his word. They were allowing the Canaanites to positively impact them. And they were supposed to be the impacting nation. And Judah was messing up there. Other people were messing up. You saw Esau marrying outside of the tribe. You saw Ishmael marrying outside. And when Judah started doing it, his guy said, okay, hold up. I'll fix this. And so he gets Joseph in slavery as a deliverer, gets them here. And look at the fruit of that, bro. They are fruitful and increase greatly and multiplied. And the estimation of that, conservatively speaking, is about two to 3 million. And I'll show where we get those numbers from a little later. But we got a problem in verse eight, bro. It says, now a new king arose over Egypt, who would Did not know Joseph. Mm. Bingo. We got a problem because Joseph is very influential. He's second in command. Now we got a, a Pharaoh that didn't know him. And so this is about to cause major problems. But you got to look at it from a different side of the coin. This is God's providence. Why? Because now he can get his people out. Through the oppression of Pharaoh, he can push his people back into the land. Man, just talk to me about that for a second, like how God has just played chess with all of this and set up his people just the way he wanted to, using sin, using people's Uh, hatred toward one another, using baby-making contests, using idolatry, using lying, losing deception. Man, every sin that man has accomplished, God has superintended and turned that evil to good.
1: No, absolutely. It's beautiful because we're learning more about God's character as we go. We're seeing the sovereignty of God. We're also seeing uh, God being a promise keeper, right?
0: Man, That's it. And so the way this Pharaoh operates, he said in verse 9, he said to the people, Behold, the people of the son of Israel are more mightier than we. Let's deal wisely with them, else they multiply, and in the event of war, they will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities. This is how he was harder on them. In verse 13, the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and brick and all kinds of labor, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. So in verse 15, and the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives and he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and see them upon the birth stool. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. All right, hold up. Wait a minute. <laughs> Let's pause. Let's put some breaks on this. Talk to me about this, Dustin. All right. If I ever was watching the news and the president say, we're going to put all of the boys to death and you can let the girls live, I'm not just going to say he's a wicked pharaoh or a wicked president, I'm going to go a little further. I'm going to say this is the money. It's something deeper here. And if you search, if you follow our theme where Genesis 315, this is why we beat this nail to death, that there will be enmity between Satan and God and the seed of Satan and the seed of God. And so if the seed of Satan knows that the seed is on earth and is going to come through Judah now, because Satan has ears, right? He heard those prophecies. If you're Satan, aren't you around the most important events of life? Satan isn't omnipresent. Satan isn't gonna be messing with Theo and Dustin. Satan is sending millions out for us. We hadn't made it to that level yet. But Satan is going to be around. Like today, where is Satan? Satan is in international politics fooling around with the Pope, fooling around with great, big, false teachers, and get this, fooling around with some of our biggest Bible teachers who are very influential, causing them to fail and stumble and testing them. And so Satan is here in this moment using Pharaoh to kill all of the firstborn males. Man, talk to me about that demonic plot. We've seen it over and over.
1: Man, it's almost like... When Satan saw that God's promise was coming true—that He was going to make them a great nation—they start having all them babies—and He said, "Oh no, we finna, we finna knock that seed off." Got to put
0: brakes on this. Yeah,
1: we are finna try to kill it.
0: But look at what happens. It says. In verse 17, but the midwives feared God. Amen. Hallelujah. Look at this. They feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives can get to them. And so God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and they became very mighty because the midwives feared God and established households for them. And man, there's a message here. God has promised the Abrahamic covenant. He's promised the Genesis 315 promise. And because the midwives chose to get behind it and fear God, God blesses their process.
1: Absolutely. It teaches us a lesson about the fear of man and fear of God. Who are we going to fear? And God blesses obedience, right?
0: He does, man. And it, but Pharaoh still strikes. He says, he commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you are to cast in the now. And every daughter, you are to keep alive. And now we get our guy. We get another deliverer come on the scene. Chapter 2 is about the birth of Moses. Now, a man from the house of... A lot of people don't catch this, but look at where... Moses is from. He's from the house of Levi. Mm. We know the story about Levi and Simeon and we know their prophecy that they'll be scattered. And so Moses comes from this line, which we'll know that the Levitical priesthood comes from this line. So Moses is a Levi and it says the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, She got a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. And she put the child into it and set it along the reeds of the bank into the Nile. So my good professor, Dr. Chow, pointed this out to me in the Hebrew, and it blew all my circuits. Guess what the word basket, wicker basket, guess what that word is in Hebrew? Ark. Mm. The same word for ark. Moses is a deliverer, just like Noah would be a deliverer, just like Joseph would be a deliverer. Moses is even putting in the language. Like, he was placed in the art to save the people. Man, isn't that powerful? Even as a baby, you Mm -hmm. see a a deliverer being raised up. But check this out. You remember the Hap Shih I was talking about? What does Mm -hmm. verse 5 say? A daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens, walking along the Nile and she saw the basket and she opened it and she saw a child and behold, a boy was crying and she had pity on him. This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. And the girl went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Let's talk about this. I think Hepshetsu fits the bill of this woman. I'm gonna tell you why. One, you got Pharaoh commissioning all of the children to be what? Killed. Killed. She gets one of the children, brings them to the court of the man who says he's going to kill him and say, no, you be quiet and take, we're going to keep this one. So this has to be a saucy woman, a woman that can pull this off. And I think she fits the bill of being able to do that. But think about the sovereignty of God in that, bro, to even raise up and allow somebody like her to be able to go against the exact orders of her father. The exact commission that he commissions, she brings a child in and says, I know you gave this edict out, but we're going to keep one. How does she pull it off, bro? Man, sovereignty of God. (laughs) That's the only answer you can give me that will be acceptable. And as we continue to read, so Moses grows up in verse 11. Now, it came about in those days when Moses had grown and he went out to his brethren and looked. On their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers, and so he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian, and the next day, behold, two Hebrews were fighting one another, and he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Whoa, wait a minute. What is going through Moses' mind when he hears that? He's tripping. <laughs> and Moses was afraid and said, surely this matter has become known. And so when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. Now think about that. This is why I wanted to set that up in the intro. Pharaoh tries to kill Moses because of this. And I believe because Moses is not just somebody he doesn't like. I think now that Moses is in the court and is the son of Hapshetsu, he's a threat to the throne. Mm. But Moses fled from the prisons of Pharaoh and settled down in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And so in this context, Moses is going to meet his wife, and his wife is, right here in verse 21, it says, Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses, she gave birth to a son and he named him Gershom, and he said, "I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and I think the same thing that we've talked about over and over, God has to develop his man, and so you see Moses striking out in murder, defending people, he's got the Peter spear bro, he's standing out there hopping on water, he's cutting the ear off, he's getting after it for the Lord. But the Lord has to work on his men and humble them and humility growing in him. He's saying, look, I'm just a sojourner in a foreign land. This is a guy who could have possibly been Pharaoh, bro. Now he's talking like this and he's going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. So verse 23, now it came about in the course of those many days that the, look at this, bro, the king of Egypt died. So we have a Pharaoh dying. And the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out to the Lord. And here's our God, verse 24. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. Man, look at this. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. That is a prayer that we all need to pray. Remember what I said. God remembering you is not, oh man, I was over here working on this people group. And y'all prayed, and I saw it, and now I'm going to start working on y'all. I'm sorry, I just had a backlog of requests. No, God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. When he remembers you, he's about to place his affection on you in a way that has never been seen before. And we're going to develop this word more. Over time, we're going to start using a word called loving kindness Mm. and grace. We need to get a little further through Exodus before we pick that word up. But that's what this God's loving kindness, his grace, where he shows attention to you and he'll rearrange the world, bro, for your behalf. In verse, in chapter three, now Moses was pastoring the flock and we start to see a trend here. Moses is a shepherd. Joshua is a shepherd. David is a shepherd. But before this, Jacob was a shepherd. We're just starting to see this trend, and I just want to pick up stuff like that. The theology of shepherd starting to form, and it'll continue as we go. But he's pasturing the flock, and then he meets this person at the Mount of Horeb called the angel of the Lord. Mm. So I got to give a little attention to that because even in verse 4, it says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, Stephen helps us out in his sermon. He tells us who the angel, the messenger of Yahweh is. In Acts 7.30, Stephen calls him Yahweh. He calls him the Lord our God. And this is where a lot of theologians help us to show us that theophanies happen in the Bible. And some take it even further, like myself, that these aren't just theophanies. If it's a theophany, it has to be one of the three persons. And I take this as Christophanes. And so you'll see me trying to tease this out. I, I try my best to do it in Genesis 19, where it says the Lord on earth rained down fire and brimstone from the Lord in heaven. So let's continue to look at it here. So there's this burning bush, a blazing fire in verse two. And in verse four, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. He said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place which you are standing is holy ground. He said, also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmaster, for I am aware of their suffering. Mm. And this is where we got to give some practical application. This is a God who's allowed them to suffer, a people probably thinking that they've been gone unnoticed, a people probably thinking that their God doesn't love them, a people probably thinking that God looks out for everybody else but me. It's telling Moses that I'm aware of their suffering and I've heard their cry. How many of us need to go back and look at texts like this when we have those type of utterances that, oh, yeah, I know God is good, but he's not shining down on me right now. I know he loves his children, but I I may be in sin he doesn't love me right now. No, God is aware of your suffering if you're his child and he's aware of your cries. Even Psalms tells us he bottles them up. He bottles your tears up. Isn't that amazing, man? Isn't this something we could lean back on in our suffering, in our hardship? No matter when God comes, he's always going to come on time, and he is aware. How encouraging is that to know that the presence and the awareness of God is accessible to you at all times?
1: No, absolutely. It makes me think, too. Like, God knows exactly what we need. We joke all the time, or not really joke. We say, this is what we need to get to the next level. The next level in our spiritual growth in God. God knows what it takes to get to that next level. And sometimes, most of the time, it takes affliction. It takes hardship to build your character. The ESV says the last verse of, of chapter 2, kind of cool. He says It says that God knew Man. man, God knew what time it was. Yeah, He knew that. He knew it was time to to move to the third phase of, of the operation.
0: Man, I, I heard a famous pastor say that sometimes in your tears and in your cries, you don't know what to tell God. Your only cry to Him is, "Lord, You know." You know. You know. And that says it all, doesn't it? Man, man, that's a biblical prayer, bro. Lord, You know. And I, I think. Man, some of our prayers need to encompass that because the Lord know knows all of the theology behind that prayer. You don't have to give all of these great pontifications or wax eloquent. Sometimes it just needs to be, Lord, you know. Man, and, amen. And as we ride out, we look at a very famous passage here. When Moses asked him, he says, Then Moses said to God, this is in verse 13, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so we got to stop here, bro, and talk about I am. Because I am helps us to understand the personal name of God. It's been stated in scripture before, but it hadn't been revealed and explained like this before. This is the first time we get explanation about God and his name. Uh, the technical designation for this is the tetragrammaton. It's YHWH or in Hebrew Yod Hey Wow or Va, depending on what kind of Hebrew you learn. Hey. So Yod Hey Wow Hey. And that's Yahweh, bro. And so that's God's personal name. He's revealed. What does that mean? There's a few things you can grab from here. Some people say this talks about God's eternality, his immutability, or his self-existence. I think two things you have to grab out of this. One is his transcendence, meaning God is other than him, in a category of his own. I am who I am. Nobody is in this category. No human no angel, I am, I transcend all. And so you get that here, but also something else I think you get here, which is important is he's relational, bro. He wants to be known. Why does he want to be known? Cause he's revealing himself. He's revealing himself. And he just told Moses that he sees and he knows, like you said, bro. And so he says, furthermore, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. And let's grab verse 19. It says, But I know the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with many miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, look at this, bro, you will not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, And the woman who lives in her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, and you will plunder the Egyptians. That's our God, bro. God is declaring war. God says, look, my bow is in the cloud in Genesis 9 with Noah. I may not take my bow off the shelf, but I got more weapons, and I declare war on Pharaoh and all of the guys of Egypt, and you are about to see a showdown. And God says, not only am I going to win the battle, you're going to plunder Egypt. You're going to take everything. And this is beautiful to me because a lot of people say, oh, man, you can't take stuff from the wicked. You got to burn everything. That's not true. You burn it when God tells you to burn it. If he puts it under the ban, you burn it. But if he say you can use it, you can use it. And this is what God does with those materials. Mm. How do you think the first tabernacle gets built? Amen. By him plundering Egypt, plundering those false gods. He says, I take all your belongings and I build my tabernacle with it because it belonged to me anyway. The whole time I created the earth. Those materials you were borrowing from me, you were on lease. I own the world. And so this is the God we serve and. It's about to go down, man. I'm excited to embark on this I'm with you. Too. Our God is about to declare war again. We've got our scene. We know he's about to fight gods. We'll try to name the guys that he's fighting. He goes to war with 10 guys, <laughs> and we'll try to name them. In practical application, our God is a warrior, bro, and he fights for his people, which is the name of who? Israel, bro. You no longer have to strive against God. God will fight for you and he's about to fight for his people. Israel has a God who fights for him. Talk to me, bro, as we ride out.
1: Man, we have a God that we can trust, and a God who blesses, along with, sometimes, he has to knock us down. But he's a good God.
0: Amen. And I'm glad I got a fighter on my side, aren't you? Amen. Because the devil is not playing tea time. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> he's not. trying to sit down and play with dogs, bro. No. He's trying to take us out. And we need a God who fights for us on our behalf. And I'm so glad to be on his team and on the right side of redemptive history. All right, let's wrap up there, man. We'll pick up chapters 4 through 6 tomorrow.